All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I'll be reading through verse 25. So Paul continues in his opening section here of his letter. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right. So last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the section before that, of course, verses 10 through 17. As the Apostle Paul now is in the meat of his letter to the church in Corinth, and he uh, was responding to a report that he received from the household of Chloe. Some, some Christians brought him a report for, his, for their, his consideration. And in that report, there were some issues that were coming up in the church that they wanted Paul to address. So one of those issues, of course, is divisions in the church. So Paul... In that section, verses 10 through 17, he pleads with them. He pleads with the Corinthian church to be united in speech, to be united in thought, and to be united in judgment. And he rebukes them for their carnal schisms, their schisms, their divisions. That word schism, that's what the word is in the Greek there. He, he rebukes them for your divisions. He says, this is carnal. This is not the way Christians ought to behave. They were creating schisms in the church. And these schisms were based on popularity or personality. And not so much that the leaders, these teachers were doing this. It was the church people were sort of gravitating toward particular teachers. Either Paul or Peter or Paulus. That's what Cephas means. That's Peter's name in Aramaic. So these schisms were perhaps based on who baptized whom, or who brought whom to to the Lord. But either way, these people were dividing in the church, and they were literally tearing apart the body of Christ. So then Paul tells them in no uncertain terms to knock it off. He doesn't say the phrase knock it off, but that's kind of what he's saying. He says knock it off. This ought not to be in the church of Christ. And he gives them three rhetorical questions, all of which were the answers for which were no. He says, is Christ divided? Of course, the answer to that question is no. Was Paul or Paulus or Cephas crucified for you? Again, the answer, no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Cephas? Again, the answer is no. And then he closes that section off by telling them that he wasn't sent there to baptize. He was sent there to preach the gospel. That was his call. He was called as an apostle to the Gentiles to bring the gospel to the the nations, to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. And Paul then endeavors to preach the gospel free from cleverness, 
free from human wisdom, free from any kind of embellishment, because in so doing, you empty the gospel. When you try to add to the gospel, you actually end up subtracting from the gospel. So this is subtraction by addition, right? Sometimes you say addition by subtraction. Sometimes you make something better by taking something away. Well, here you make something worse by adding to it. And then in that last verse there, in verse 17, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, that last section there, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. That brings us now into our passage this morning here, because that leads us into this whole passage we're going to see here where the world's wisdom is, is pitted up against the wisdom of God. And we're going to see that the world's wisdom is not really wisdom. It is weakness. It's foolishness. The world's strength is weakness. And then what the world sees as foolish and weakness, that is the power and wisdom of God. That's what we're going to see uh, this morning. But So as we head into the passage this morning here, verses 18 through 25, we need again to recall, this is, you know, we have this tendency, you know, when we do Bible studies, when we do sermons, whatever, you know, we take a chunk of, you know, a letter or a chunk of a book and we look at that chunk. And then the next week we take the next chunk or whatever. Maybe sometimes we go to a different chunk. But the point is, this was a letter, right? You know, and if they were reading this letter, they wouldn't have gathered the church together. Okay, we've got a letter from the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read to you the first 10 verses of the letter. Come back next week, and I'll read you the next 10 verses. No, they read the whole letter in one sitting. And here, what we see here, this section we're looking at, really, from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 6, this is Paul dealing with Chloe's report. Okay, there's three things that he deals with. The biggest of that section is the section on divisions, which goes from chapter 1, verse 10 to the end of chapter 4. It's the largest topic in the letter and an issue of first importance. And the previous section we looked at notes the facts about the problem. So Paul lays out, this is what I've heard from Chloe's household. There are divisions among you. Now he's going to focus on Christ crucified as the solution to those schisms. He gives solutions to the problem. That's what he's going to do here, really from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 5 of chapter 2. And we're going to look at that in the two or three weeks. But um, Paul is going to start giving them the idea, the way to solve the divisions in your church is to focus on the gospel. It's to focus on Christ crucified, not the messenger. The message is what you focus on. Now, what we're going to look at this morning here, verses 18 through 25, is again how Christ is the wisdom and power of God. And we can break this down roughly into four sections. We're going to see in verse 18, the message of the cross. Verses 19 through 20, the foolishness of human wisdom. Verses 21 through 24, Christ crucified. And then finally in verse 25, the superiority of God's wisdom. So again, looking at verse 18, the message of the cross. So coming off speaking about how he has been sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize, Paul then wants to talk about the message of the cross in verse 18 where he says, for the message or the word, literally there, the word is word. The message of the cross or the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, again, like I said, that word message is a familiar word in Greek. It's logos. It means word. But when it's used to describe speech, any kind of vocal kind of activity, 
It can mean anything from a word or a saying or a speech or a teaching or a message. So I think message is not a bad translation because it is not literally the word cross. If you just say the word cross to people, it doesn't sort of solve divisions in the church. It is the message of the cross or the gospel, which is really what he's saying here. That is what the gospel is. It is the message of the cross. And it's a powerful message. But more important than the word message is that this verse here, in this verse, Paul is making clear that in regards to the message of the cross, there are two types of people and there are two types of responses to that. Right? He says, to the cross, to those who are perishing, the response for them is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, that's the other group of people, it is the power of God. So those two types of people, those who are perishing. Now, I bet you didn't wake up this morning thinking you're going to get a little bit of a Greek syntax lesson. And don't worry, I'm not going to get too deep into it. But the word there is, is, a, predis, is a present participle. And you're like, what's that? Well, it just means it's kind of speaking of continuous action. Okay, it's speaking of continuous action. So those who are perishing, this is a good translation. It indicates these people are in the act of perishing. Right? Unbelievers who who are living their lives apart from the gospel, living their lives apart from God, are in the act of perishing. They are dying in this world. I mean, we're dying physically, but they will also eventually die spiritually when they face judgment. And against those, the other group of people, those who are being saved, again, another present participle, which denotes a continuous action. But in this case, we are passive in this process. We are being saved. We are being saved by the gospel message. We are being saved by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and continues to renew us and all of these things. So these two types of people, you got people who are dying and people who are being saved. And of course, you have the two responses. For those who are dying, the message of the cross, the gospel, if you were to preach that to somebody who is an unbeliever, they would look at you and say, that's foolish or some other you know, thing that's connected to that. You know, fill in the blank for whatever vernacular you want to use in the 21st century. But it's foolishness to them. It is something that is moronic. That's the word there. Moria, moronic. We get moron from that. It is foolishness. But those of us who are being saved, we see the gospel not as foolishness, but as the power of God. You would think you might contrast that with wisdom. You might say it is the wisdom of God. But no, here Paul says, no, the message of the cross for those who are being saved is the power of God. And this is the case with the gospel. We mustn't think when someone rejects the gospel as foolish that the gospel has failed. Right? If someone, if you present the gospel to someone or if someone hears the gospel preached and they reject it, it is not as if the word of God has failed. Because the the gospel has accomplished its goal both when those who are perishing reject it and when those who are being saved accept it. That's why it's of prime importance not to preach the gospel with words of wisdom. Not to embellish it. Not to sort of add cleverness to it. If people see the gospel as foolish, it's not a sign you need to make the gospel more appealing. That is sometimes our temptation, right? You know, I've presented the gospel to somebody. They rejected it. Well, maybe I did it wrong. You might have, but maybe you did it right. (laughs) You know, maybe you did it perfectly right. Maybe you presented the gospel in all its clarity 
And they just reject it. You don't need to go back and try to embellish it and make the Gospel more appealing. Because if the Gospel is being preached faithfully and people reject it, it is accomplishing its goal. That may seem a little kind of backwards to think of that, that the Gospel is rejecting, you know, when it's rejected, it's accomplishing its goal. But that is, that is the truth. Because the last thing the church needs is a bunch of false Christians believing a false Gospel that gives them false hope. If you water it down, if you embellish it, if you make it somehow more appealing to the unbeliever, and then they believe it, have they believed the true gospel? Depends how you watered it down, I suppose. But now they're in the church and they think they're saved because they're believing a false gospel. Now they have a false hope. So you're doing them a disservice. The message of the cross does not accord with human artistry or human rhetoric. Now, we'll get more into the foolishness of the gospel a little later, but consider what Paul says right in the, near, in the very next chapter. It may be on the same page, or you may have to turn a page. But in chapter 2, verse 14, again, this is still under that section of dealing with divisions in the church, but in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, this is a very classic verse, Paul says, "...the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned." The gospel is foolishness because the message of the cross is spiritually discerned. In other words, it's not that it's not that the natural man can't understand it. It's the natural man doesn't want to understand it. The natural man rejects it. So he does not have the faculties to see the gospel in any other way except as something that is foolish. However, to those who are being saved... Again, the gospel is received as the power of God. And that's if you remember back when we looked at Romans last year. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel message is powerful in that the Spirit will take the gospel message, bring it into the heart of an unbeliever, and bring in new birth, and bring that person to faith, and bring that person into Union with Christ. So the power of the gospel, the gospel, that's why Paul's not ashamed. That's why Paul preaches the message of the gospel. He's, he doesn't back off because he's not ashamed of the message, even though some may take it as foolish, because he knows that message has the power of God unto salvation. It's a powerful message. And that's why Paul, he was not ashamed to be a minister of the gospel because he knew its power first. It was, a, it was the gospel in the sense that it converted Paul, right? I mean, and converted him hard. <laughs> he was, he was a, he, you know, that's the kind of conversion you, never, you, know, you almost never see uh, happen all the time. It's just somebody, I'm on my way to kill Christians, and then before you know it, I'm on my way preaching the gospel. That's kind of what happened to Paul, right? He was on his way to kill some Christians, and then Jesus gave an up-close and personal encounter with himself, and he was changed immediately. So now let's look at uh, verses 19 through 20, um, the foolishness of human wisdom. So the world, those who are perishing, those who think that the message of the cross is foolish, what does God think of their wisdom? Well, that's what we see in verse 19, where he, he is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He says, I will destroy, this is God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Like I said, that's a quotation from Isaiah. 
you can jot the reference down in Isaiah 29 verses 13. It's really it's Isaiah 29:14, but 13 gives you a little more context as well, where the prophet says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. So this is a prophecy really against Jerusalem and Israel. It's against the, the people of God for coming to worship with hearts that are far from God. So they're, they're filling the pews in the church. They're singing the words in the hymn book. They're reading the words in the Bible, but their hearts are not with God. And they listen to false teachers and false wise men. So God says, as a judgment, I'm going to destroy their wisdom. I'm going to destroy their prudence. So Paul borrows this and applies this to the wise or the wisdom of the world. God doesn't think very much of the world's wisdom. For he will, bring, he will destroy the wisdom of the wise and he will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now we have to remember, again, if you remember from the introduction a few weeks back, right? Corinth is a city. It's a cosmopolitan city. Uh, it's a very important city. And it was a city that was very steeped in the philosophy of the day. In fact, the ancient statesman Arist uh, Aristides said of Corinth, on every street in Corinth, one met a so-called wise man who had solutions to humanity's problems. In other words, you could find a philosopher on every street corner. I come from Chicago, you could find a pizzeria on every street corner. Well, in Corinth, you could find a philosopher on every street corner spouting off what, in his opinion or her opinion, were the solutions to the huma humanity's problems. It's not really different than it is today. Right When truth and objectivity are in very short supply, everyone's going around claiming their own truth. This is my truth. This is your truth. Well, you know, what you're saying doesn't comport with my truth. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I mean, there's the truth, and then there's stuff that's not true. <laughs> that would be false. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the truth does not sort of admit to degrees. You know, there's... True, there's false. Not true, then true for you, true for you. <laughs> no, there's just truth and then there's falsity. But everyone goes around claiming their own truth. Our society seems to be enthralled with the so-called experts. People who think they know better because they have degrees or because they work in government or whatever. I don't want to get into a political tirade, but you know, you, you, we give so much credence to the experts because they think they have the solutions for everyone's problems. It is to these people that the gospel seems foolish. And it is to these people that God says, your wisdom will be destroyed and your understanding will be brought to nothing. Because it's going to be interesting on Judgment Day, right? Because all of the so-called wise men of the world, all the so-called smart people, will be called to God to give an accounting. And that's what makes Paul say in verse 20 so poignant, where he says, where is the wise where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And again, this is reminiscent of something that Isaiah said in Isaiah 19.12, where again, God speaks to the prophet. Where are they? 
Where are your wise men? Let them tell now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. If you remember in the days of Moses, right? When Moses went before Pharaoh and did a a work, like when he took his staff and it turned into a snake, well, what did Egypt's wise men do? They did the same thing. They were able to work another, you know, it's like, hey, look, we can make sticks turn into snakes too. So Pharaoh's like, oh, okay, you're nothing special, Moses. And for a while that happened until finally Moses was able to do something. Well, God did it through Moses, but then Moses was able to do something. The wise men were like, I can't do that. And then eventually the wise men were like, Pharaoh, you need to give in because Egypt is being destroyed. You need to just let the people go. So just as the wise men tried to imitate God during the Exodus and were shamed, God will call the wise men of this age too. As Job says in one of his discourses, he leads counselors away, plundered, and makes fools of the judges. Now, when I was in college, I studied philosophy. I was a philosophy major. And I went into it thinking, oh, this is, you know, I'm going to learn some things here. And when I came out of it, I realized that all you have is a string of philosophers, one after the other, sort of contradicting what the guy before him said. (laughs) So someone would come and say, here's the answers to everything. And then he would die. And then another person would come up and say, he's wrong. I've got the answers to everything. Then that guy would die. And then another guy would come up. They're both wrong. I have the answers to everything. The wisest person in the world is a fool when compared to God. And the fool... A fool, in quotes, with a basic understanding of the Bible is far wiser than the wisest person who rejects God. The cross crushes man's sin and crushes man's pride. It also offers deliverance from sin and deliverance from pride. Let us now turn to verses 21 through 24 and look at Christ crucified. So how does God destroy the wisdom of the wise? He does it through the preaching of Christ crucified. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So it was in the infinite wisdom of God that the world, that is the unbelieving world, would not know God through wisdom. Again, think of all the philosophies in the world, all the philosophers of the world. How many of them have ever come to a correct understanding of God and a correct understanding of the world, a correct understanding of sin, and a correct understanding of how to be saved from sin? How many, just guess, just give me a number. How many of you think, yeah, exactly, goose egg. Zero. Zero. All of the understanding in the world. Because you cannot build a case of human wisdom and get to God. God does not allow that. God has not given us that option. He has not let that option be pursued. It's not to say that human wisdom is 100% wrong 100% of the time. In fact, due to God's common grace, human wisdom has achieved many great and wonderful things. But, it still has never come to a correct understanding concerning the things of God. In fact, as a side note, there are those even within Christian circles who would argue for the value of philosophy, who uh, people like Thomas Aquinas or people who followed after Thomas Aquinas, they think that philosophy, in, in Aquinas' day, philosophy was considered natural theology. 
sort of the, through natural theology, you can lead one into what he called the vestibule of faith. So you can, through wisdom, bring someone up into the foyer. So it would be like, if here, if the sanctuary is faith, he would say that natural theology can bring you out into the foyer. And then you'd have to come in through the doors to faith. But it can, it can get you close. Right? That, that would be people like Aquinas. Like human wisdom, human philosophy can get you, can get your foot in the door. You just need to go the rest of the way. And I think as well-meaning as this view is, you cannot use human philosophy to get believers to the goal line. Okay? You need, you need Jesus, right? It's like you, you know, human wisdom gets you up to the goal line, then Jesus takes you over the goal line and scores the touchdown. That's not how it works. Because human philosophy isn't going to even get you to the goal line. There you exactly. Amen. Again, look at 1 Corinthians 2:14. The natural man does not receive the things of God. To him they are foolish, absurd, nonsensical. So as an open rebuke to human wisdom, God uses the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He says, "Here, I'm going <laughs> to It's almost as if God is saying, "All you wise men, I'm going to give you a foolish message." To show how you get to God. Something you're going to look at and you're going to say, that's dumb. No way you can get to God that way. And God's going to say, that's the way I'm going to use. Just to confound you. Just to destroy your wisdom. So Paul continues in verses 22 through 24. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I've used this verse in other contexts before. But you've got these two groups of people, right? You've got Jewish people and you've got Greeks or Gentiles, right? And the Jewish people are always looking for a sign, some kind of miracle, some kind of wonder to authenticate the word of a prophet. So whenever Jesus would go around, he would do all these wondrous signs, the Pharisees would say, what sign do you show us so that we may believe you're the Messiah? Now, you know, thank God I'm not the Messiah, but if I were, I might have said something, what about all those signs I just showed you? <laughs> you know? But then Jesus says, no. He says, okay, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, and guess what? You're not going to get a sign. The only sign you're going to get is, you know, the sign of Jonah. And they're like, what does that mean? You know, so you know, that's the idea. It's like when they ask for a sign, basically they're asking Jesus to show us a trick. And they were refusing to see the works that he was doing as signs that were authenticating his ministry. In fact, they went so far as to attribute those signs to the work of the devil. He says, ah, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. What is, you know, at that point, what do you do? You know, that, that, at that point, they've kind, of, they've kind of kicked off, you know, if, if they're trying to cross you know, the, the runway to a, you know, from the, de- you know, the shore to a ship, they've kind of kicked the gangway, the gangplank away. They can't cross onto the ship anymore. He performed many signs, but the Jews weren't looking too closely and even attributed his signs to the power of the devil. And on the other side, the Greeks or the Gentiles, they seek wisdom. They want wisdom. They want you to prove something through human understanding, through human reasoning. And the message of the cross says, a pox on both your houses. No. In response to the Jews' request for a sign and the Greeks' request for wisdom, God gives them a crucified Savior. You want wisdom? 
I'm going to give you a crucified Savior. You want a sign? I'm going to give you a crucified Savior. This was scandalous. The word literally means a stumbling block. Scandalon, a stumbling block, something you trip over. It was scandalous to the Jews. The Messiah dying on a tree, cursed by God. That's not our Messiah. Our Messiah is going to come. He's going to, he's going to rout the Romans. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to reestablish the kingdom of David, and we're going to have a new golden age. That's our Messiah. Not some cursed guy hanging on a tree. That's not our Messiah. Exactly. They missed the signs. That's the point. They missed the signs. And to the Greeks, this was foolishness. Story of a dying and rising God-man. Why would God do that? Why would God take on human flesh in the first place? Human flesh, the physical material stuff, according to the Greek philosophies, was evil. Why would something that is divine take on something that was considered evil? Foolishness. Commentator who writes a very fine commentary in this book, Gordon Fee, says, The gospel stands as the divine antithesis to such human judgments. No mere human in his or her right mind to otherwise, uh, or otherwise would ever have dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It's too preposterous, too humiliating for God. And that's exactly what the message of the cross is. But that's the message that saves. It is the message that saves. Those who are called, to those who are called, the elect, to those whom God foreordained until salvation, who have been born again and granted eyes to see Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the power of God. He demonstrated the power of God all throughout his earthly ministry by his wondrous works, right? Raising people from the dead, feeding miraculous numbers of people, healing people, curing sicknesses, casting out demons. Jesus did all these things. This demonstrates the power of God as the power of God is breaking forth into the, into the world as the kingdom of God is breaking forth and is reclaiming lost territory that Satan has usurped as the kingdom of God sort of reverses the curse. That's what all those miracles were for. Reversing the effects of the curse. He demonstrated the power of God by overcoming death itself through His resurrection. And the story of His life, death, and resurrection demonstrates the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And Jesus Christ is also the wisdom of God. The heavenliness of his teaching made many people marvel at his wisdom. How many times throughout the Gospels do you see after Jesus' teaching, the people would say, no one has ever spoke like this man. Or when he was even 12 years old in the, in the temple, arguing with the, or debating with the, the, the religious leaders, they say, where did he get this wisdom you know, all these things. People marveled at his wisdom because to their eyes, he was, he was somebody from Galilee, right? You know, nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? He was, a, he was a person of questionable parentage, shall we say, right? You know, it was probably known throughout most of the people that Joseph was not his father. And, you know, so he's, he's perhaps born of, you know, of a questionable arrangement there. He's just some dude, right? He's just a carpenter. He is, he's not studied. He, where did you go to school? You know, it's like he didn't go to school at all the, any of the right schools. Where did this man get his wisdom? Well, he is the wisdom of God. 
As Paul says, Paul says elsewhere, Colossians 2.3, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some, not most. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is the message of salvation to all who believe, to Jews and Greeks, to everyone. The powerful message of Christ crucified is able to break through the scandal of the Jewish mind. It is able to break through the foolishness of the Greek mind as God calls people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to believe the scandalous and foolish message of Christ crucified. Well, Paul now gives us the checkmate in verse 25 as we see the superiority of God's wisdom in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God destroys the wisdom of the wise through the means of foolishness. The foolishness of the message of the cross destroys the wisdom of the wise. And that's one of the things that convinces me of the truth of the gospel message is its foolishness, right? Not that it's really foolish, but in its ability to sort of confound the wisdom of the world. Because, again, who could have thought up of such a way of salvation? Who could have thought up of such a message? No one. No one, right? Again, God coming in human flesh, uh, dying in a place of, of sinners, Bearing the wrath of God for sinners that God would kill his own son to spare me? I wouldn't have come up with that idea. <laughs> it's not something I would have come up with. I don't think any of the wisdom of the world would have come up with it. I mean, mythology is filled with dying and rising God figures, but a God coming down to earth, assuming a human nature to die in the place of an ungrateful human race to appease his own wrath for their sin? foolish to the world. Weakness becomes the circuit through which strength is conveyed. And what seems to be foolish, the message of the cross, becomes the vehicle by which wisdom is transmitted. And because this message is so scandalous, so foolish, the natural man will continue to ridicule it, he will continue to disdain it, he will continue to despise it. And it goes back to something we said earlier. This is part of the intended effect of the gospel to harden the hearts of unbelievers and stand in judgment of them. Again, Isaiah 9.10. We mentioned this briefly earlier, but I've got a bunch of verses here that, that speak to this. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So God goes to the prophet Isaiah and says, go and preach to this people so that this, these people will continue to reject me. <laughs> that way they will be confirmed in their unbelief. Isaiah 29.10 for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads, namely the seers. In other words, God has, you know, part of God's judgment on his wicked people is to send them false prophets and false seers who, who prophesy against God's will. 
Ezekiel 12, verse 2, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see and ears to hear but does not hear for they are a rebellious house and I could go on and on. For all the vaunted strength and wisdom of man, God will reduce it to nothing by the foolishness and weakness of his message, the gospel message, the message found in the message of the cross. So as we wrap up, this morning, what lies underneath the scandal and foolishness of the message of the cross? At its heart, really, what the message of the cross tells us is that, to mankind, really, says you cannot save yourself. You need someone to save you. And this is a message that, this is not a message that you say that appeals to the natural man. This is not a message that appeals to humanity. Because humanity thinks we can do it ourselves. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That we can be good enough. That was the Jewish mind, right? The Jewish mind, the legalistic Jewish mind was, I'm going to follow the law because that's where righteousness is. And I'm going to follow it fastidiously. I'm going to tithe my mint, my dill, my cumin. I'm going to tithe even the littlest things. I'm going to create 600 plus rules on how to keep the Sabbath so I don't break the Sabbath. And I'm going to earn my righteousness. Which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, your righteousness needs to exceed that. In other words, the people would say, well, they're the most righteous people in the world, aren't they? It's like, they're self-righteous. You need a righteousness that exceeds self-righteousness. The cross thus stands as the final negation of all human attempts to attain God. Its truth cannot be achieved through the best of human intellect, and strength, but must be received as a gift in the humble submission of faith and trust. Put it another way, humanity wants to be the knight in shining armor, right? We can rescue ourselves. Humanity wants to be the knight in shining armor, but you know what? We are the damsel in distress. <laughs> we are the ones that need to be saved. Jesus is the knight in shining armor. We are the damsel in distress. Ask any unbeliever how they get to heaven, assuming they even acknowledge the possibility of an afterlife, and they'll probably give you some answer that rests on good works. Well, I'm just going to hope that my good outweighs my bad. Or, I think I'm a good enough person. I think God is okay with me because I you know, don't do this or that or the other thing. The message of the cross destroys all that by replacing what is called the theology of glory, as we can do it ourselves, with a theology of the cross, which is you can't do it. You have to trust Christ that it is done because you cannot do it. Well, Lord willing, next time, next week, the 14th, we will continue and look at the rest of chapter 1, verses 26 to 31.